1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Let me read it, and then I'll, then I'll set it up for us. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he comments and says, things into which angels long to look. Now likely, unless you have entered into a book study on the book of First Peter, this isn't one of these passages people typically go to. This isn't one of the places we typically find ourselves looking, reading, studying. But it is critically important to our understanding of salvation history. Effectively, this understanding that the way God moved in the Old Testament finds continuity with the way that he moved and revealed himself in the New Testament. There is not this, this uh, one purpose and movement of God in the Old Testament, and then he says, oy vey, that didn't work out so well, let me change things, and then move in the New Testament. There is continuity, there is a continuum, a plane, whereby God communicated in the Old Testament, and his communication always ended toward the same end. It's always headed toward the same end. There was no course correction in the person of Jesus. Jesus was always the answer. He was always God's purpose and God's plan. Critical that we understand that. And I think this passage uniquely addresses it in a way that is, is a little bit different. And so we're going to come to it, and we're going to see that as we move through it. And so the question that's going to be rolling around in our minds is, how is the Old Testament and the New Testament brought together? And we're going to see that in this passage. Look at how he opens it up. He says, concerning this salvation. Now, if this is the first week you're joining us, you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we've been going through First Peter and looking at, uh, kind of clause by clause, verse by verse, how this thing is unfolded. Now, Peter addressed a group of people, and he referred to them as this word. He said, you are elect exiles. And everybody, what does this mean? This is not our home. This is not our home. He wrote to them, and he said, this is not your home. You are a pilgrim. You are a sojourner. This place you live, not this city, not this town, not this family, but this earth is not your home. And so he addressed them with this. And when you write somebody and you say, this is not your home, and so the question that kind of rolls around in their mind is, then what? Then what should I expect? Well, it answers the question of, what do I do with suffering? And suffering, you remind yourself, this is not your home, and he begins to key in on something that is absolutely theirs and something that is absolutely transformative to the time they spend here as sojourners, and that being salvation. He writes to them and he addresses the issue of salvation. He tells them that they have received mercy from God. They have been born again to a living hope, verse 2. Why? Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And in this salvation, they have received an inheritance. And he describes this inheritance and he says that it is imperishable. He says that it is undefiled. And he says that it is unfading. And say, this is great, I have this inheritance, this rich blessing that's coming to me. He says, oh wait, it gets better. This inheritance for you is kept in heaven by God. God is safekeeping, safeguarding your inheritance. And there's even more good news. He's not only safeguarding, safekeeping your inheritance, he has enshrined himself around you and he is guarding you as well. So in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, we know two things. One, our inheritance is safe, and two, we ourselves are safe. It didn't sit well with some. 
And so we know that, that we are safe, that our inheritance is safe. And so this is the salvation that he's talking about. The salvation that we receive when we confess Christ is the salvation that we will ultimately fully receive when we enter into heaven or Christ returns. Do you understand that? And so you, when you confess Christ as Lord, when you trust in him, when you exercise faith, you are saved. But the ultimate realization of that salvation that is kept in heaven for you is not fully yours until you come to meet Jesus in the flesh. Do you understand that? Now this salvation is not some New Testament development. It's not some New Testament development. Look what he says here. Concerning this salvation, this thing that is yours, this thing will ultimately you will fully and finally receive, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The salvation that you currently have was the subject of tremendous inquiry and searching by the Old Testament prophets. And this clues into something. This reminds us of something that maybe we, it was kind of out there on the fringes, but we didn't really know how to articulate it. Every person that has ever been saved has only been saved in the name of Jesus. Do you understand that? It's critically important. There is no other name by which we might be saved And you can find that in Acts 4.12. There's no other name by which we might be saved. Every person that is ever saved is only saved in the name of Jesus. There is no prototypical Jesus in the Old Testament. And then salvation is finally and fully realized in Jesus. No, the trajectory, their faith, their promise was always in the Messiah. And the Messiah is only ever fulfilled in Jesus. Every person who's ever saved is only saved in Jesus. you got to be careful how you say that. You could really mess people up. But anybody who's ever saved is always saved in Jesus. Now look what he says. Knowing this, knowing this, knowing that there's this terrific salvation on the horizon, they searched and they inquired carefully. So this gives us the impression that as the prophet would go out and they would prophesy, they're, they're rolling through their minds of, what does this mean? How is this all gonna work out? Now let's look at a couple of different snapshots of this. Daniel 8, verse 15 Daniel 8 and verse 15, he has finished prophesying and he says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And so what we see is that Daniel finishes prophesying. He finishes communicating on the part and person of God. And when he gets through it, he's wanting to map out. He's wanting to know exactly how all these things are going to unfold. He wants to understand it. Why does he want to understand it? Because he wants to know about the grace that is coming. It's what we see here. They're about the grace that was to be yours. Now Habakkuk gives us an even better picture. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. Habakkuk is, is throwing out things to God and waiting for response. And so he's prophesying or he's, he's casting back something to God. He's waiting for response. And look what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision, verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. And this is where they found themselves. Look at the last part of this. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So we get the impression that the prophet's out there and they're prophesying God is speaking through them and and they're not dispassionate. 
They don't say it, and they're like, oh, you know, things are going to work out. I'm more of a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. They say these things. They're led to communicate these things, and they are pouring over the Scriptures to try and figure out what is, what is saying. They're pouring over the Scriptures to try and see how all these things are going to work out. They are captivated with a careful searching of God and the study of His Word. It gives us an incredible picture for how we should be today. We have the full revelation of God. We have God that he has spoken to us. Hebrews opens up and it says God has spoken in a variety of different ways and a variety of different forms, but now he has ultimately and finally spoken to us in the person of his son. We have in the Bible the testimony of God to us revealing all we ever need to know about him. It's not based, we don't know God based upon how we experience him. We know God based upon how he has revealed himself to us. We don't know God based upon how we experience him. We know him based upon how he's revealed himself to us. Experience is shifting sand. It is unsturdy, unsteady ground. If I go to you, let me see who wants to be the guinea pig. If, if I go to Aaron and I say, Aaron... You need to know that God is love. Aaron says, on the basis of what then do you describe God as love? And I say, on the basis of 1 John, on the basis of John 3, on the basis of Malachi, on the basis of all the things I find in Scripture. We see the steady, repeated refrain that God loves humanity, that he sent his son to die for humanity. And Aaron's response is, well, my experience has led me to believe that God is nothing but a vindictive jerk. And so when I read scripture and I come across all these references that seem to indicate God is love, I find it to be contra my experience. And on the basis of this, I cast it out. I get rid of it. Experience is a lens by which we read scripture. It's always going to end up judging scripture incorrectly. Because our experience is so prone to shift and so prone to change. We feel especially close to God. We read through the scriptures and we say, oh, look, we see God moving this way, showing himself to be that way. We feel particularly far from God and cast off from God. We read through the scriptures and we say, oh, we see God as this vindictive, small-minded, myopic grandfather who's not involved or cares about any of the issues that are going on in my life. Experience can never be the lens whereby we understand God. Notice here. They're not looking at and evaluating God on the basis of their experience, but they're searching and inquiring carefully those things that God has led them to say, to communicate. As the prophets spoke, they spoke Scripture. As we want to understand and know God, we don't go and say, somebody tell me something, some way that God has moved in your, in your life. Give me some amazing testimony so that I might know God better. We know God first and foremost through his revealed will and the word of God. It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. We have to know God through his word. And to know God through his word, we have to be a people of his word, a people who aren't caught up in the different bylines of politicians' promises, but a people who are absolutely captivated by the revealed will of God contained within the 66 books of our Bible. Amen? Amen. Look what he goes on to write. He describes, he says, look, they, they searched, they inquired carefully, they're pouring themselves out doing this, and look, look, this is how in verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. What person or time? 
So think of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, he's pouring out all these descriptions of the suffering servant. And Isaiah finishes, and he's looking at it. He wants to know who this person will be, when this person will come. He is bent on knowing the eventuality of the Messiah, how these things are going to work out. How's God going to do this? When is this going to happen? Will I see him? Will I be alive to see him? We see this even when Jesus shows up. In Luke, you read through, and you find that there were those who God had promised that they would see the coming Messiah, and they held out and lived life waiting in eager expectation that these things would be revealed to them. But it's something incredibly important here that we learn about inspiration. Inspiration being the theory of how we receive the Bible. To what degree is it God speaking and what degree is it man speaking? We need to recognize that the Bible is fully inspired. This isn't theological parlance that's not important for the layperson. This is incredibly important for all of us. Because if it's only partially inspired... To take the idea that it's that some type of Dalmatian sense of inspiration, that it's more inspired than certain spots than others. Do you get that Dalmatian? They're a dog. They bark at fires. Not typically very bright. And so if you take this Dalmatian sense of inspiration, that it's more inspired in certain spots than others, friend, how are you to determine which is more inspired than, than the rest of it? How are you then to read through it and to say, oh, look, I found the spot that's particularly inspired. We should give greater credence to this than that other stuff over there. Oh, it was just hooey, bunk, less inspired, rubbish. Let's rip that page out and move on. We end up with some type of fetish red-letter Bible that only listens to the things Jesus said that resonate in our hearts that we judge through the shifting lens of experience. We can't do that. can't do that. Look what he says there. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of those prophets produced what we have today. The Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of those prophets led to what we read and what we base our salvation on. How we know and understand God was produced by the movement of the Holy Spirit in the heart and lives of those prophets. Do you understand that? It's critically important. It was not their experience. It was not based on a good day or a bad day. It was the movement of God. The inspiration of Holy Scripture came about by the movement of God. And all these things always pointed to, always, always, always pointed to salvation in the Messiah. I think too many of us have this understanding that you get to the Old Testament, God's so incredibly concerned with rules. In fact, he wrote 10 of them down and said, you need to focus on these 10 and everything else is just gravy. And so that's, that's kind of by and large, if you're to ask people, what do you think about the Old Testament? They're like, it's kind of rules. You got rules and you got numbers of people. Baguette, 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 baguette. I read that stuff real fast. Baguette! Whoo! You read 30 pages of baguette and you're good. They have this unbelievable understanding that God has nothing but rules, and he's preoccupied with it in the Old Testament. But when he gets to the New Testament, it's almost like God had a midlife crisis and said, I want to quit being so crabby. I want to quit being so crabby, and it's just grace. This is absolute bunk. This is absolutely terrible. But we absolutely see it in almost every conversation we have with somebody who knows this much about Scripture or who's this much saved. And you say, friend, how did, how did you come to know Jesus? And they said, oh, I grew up in church. Oh, that's fantastic. You were born there. Oh, of course not. I was born at a hospital. But soon after I was there, soon after I was there, my mom, she always had me in church. My grand, she has such a terrific faith. And I say, well, well what have you come to know about your separation from God? And they say, oh, I'm not separated from God at all. 
You see, because God had a heart change, and he's all love, grace, and mercy, and he pulls me in, and he draws me in. And I say, well, do you recognize the Bible tells us that you are woefully separated from God, that Ephesians 2 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Spiritually, you were dead. Spiritually, you're far off from this God who's nothing but goodness, grace, and mercy. And he found you in complete and utter rebellion to him. And it's in that state that he called you. It's in that state that he beckoned you come. It's not because God had a midlife crisis heart change. It's because, friend, your heart was changed. That's what we see the testimony of Scripture is. The same God that's in the Old Testament and communicating his incredible love is the same God in the New Testament communicating his love. The Old Testament is still full of grace and mercy, just as much as the New Testament is. We see God's grace and mercy revealed in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. We see God described through grace and mercy through the prophets of the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, they call, book of Malachi it calls out and says, how have you loved us? And God's refrain is, how have I not loved you? You were caught up in complete rebellion. You didn't bring your tithes. Divorce is rampant. You were giving no attention to me, no word to me. You didn't honor me. And yet, I still upheld you. God's display to humanity is gracious and merciful from cover to cover. To read it any other way is to misread and to read through the subjective lens of experience and us ourselves being vindictive. Now look what... Look what he goes on to say here. First part of verse 11, they're inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They want to know how these things are going to work out. But look at the particulars of it, the second part. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ, so you can say Isaiah 53, and the subsequent glories, he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection. Now, we come across this and we read this, this English word predicted. Now, I, I just want to address this quickly. I, I think the ESV, because of the connotation, because of kind of the associated meaning caught up in the word predicted, we need to unpack this a little bit. Their meaning could say he foretold, he communicated something that was surely going to happen. It was going to happen on the basis that he said it. He didn't say it because he knew it would happen. You see that him saying it is causative. Him saying it is what's bringing it about. He's saying it because it was a surety. It was going to happen. The Holy Spirit in them was foretelling about the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. This grace, this grace that was to come to the elect exiles, this grace that was to come to you and to me, this grace is what these prophets were out there talking about and they so desperately wanted to know how it was going to work out. Who was going to receive it? When would they receive it? How are all these things going to come together? And what we see is they're going to come together in the person of Jesus Christ. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the plan of salvation for humanity always hinged on the person of Jesus. Always hinged on the person of Jesus. There wasn't some cosmic rewrite when Adam and Eve sinned against God and left the garden. There wasn't some cosmic rewrite when God said, okay, look, it didn't work with those two, but, but I'm going to raise up this nation, Israel, and they're going to be awesome. It, it wasn't that he went through that and he said, man, you guys are just a thorough disappointment to me. I'm going to send you to Babylon, away with you. I'm just going to have to rewrite this whole thing and I'm going to pick a guy. Oh, I'll pick my son. I'll pick a second person of the Trinity. I'll pick Jesus. Surely he won't disappoint. 
the plan and purpose for humanity always, always centers on Jesus. Any hope that humanity ever had is always centered on Jesus. Today, we need that reminder. Any hope that we ever had always centers on Jesus, not some political process, not our neighbors being better people, not moving to a better neighborhood, not getting our kids in a better school, not taking a better job. Any hope for us always only rests in the person of Jesus. We've got to know that. Isaiah 53, so beautifully describes the suffering of Jesus and we see the glories of Jesus so wonderfully described in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 gives us this picture really of of kind of the the sufferings and then the glory. Let me read starting in verse 6 of chapter 2 in Philippians. Speaking of Jesus, he said, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, greedily held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being Born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, listen to this, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The prophets are there and they're prophesying and they're describing, they're foretelling through the Spirit of Christ how these things would come to be. And they had in their mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the suffering death of Jesus. They had in their mind that Jesus would come and he would live, this Messiah figure would come and he would live a perfectly sinless life and he would pay the ultimate price for humanity. And in so doing, he would drive a death knell for sin and death. You see, it's not just that he takes on the punishment of humanity in general, but he takes on my punishment. He takes on my sin. He takes on your sin. Pride, lust, You run through, you look in the mirror in the morning, and you run through this list of things you struggle with. The sin that's just festering inside you, those things that he called you out of, and those things you're currently struggling with. And the understanding is that Jesus didn't die for some kind of ephemeral sin that's somewhere out there, but he died for the sin that wants to take up residence in your heart. So we begin to see ourselves in the sufferings of Jesus. We begin to see ourselves in the crucifixion of Jesus. And we begin to see him in all of his glory in the resurrection. Took the form of a servant. He didn't consider himself to be haughty or high above. He considered himself as a servant to the lowest of low. He died in the most horrid way imaginable in the first century. He died on a cross. But look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what they were prophesying. This is what they were inquiring. This is what they were seeking to know. They wanted to know about the sufferings. They wanted to know about the subsequent glories. They wanted to know how all these things would pan out. How all these things would come to be. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, it was revealed to these prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. There's something very human in the fact, and this is kind of a side note, there's something very human in the fact that if somebody finds you in the midst of some process, you're uh, remodeling a home, you're, you're, you're making a dinner, and then somebody says, oh, you're not, you're not going to get to keep that. It's for somebody else. There's this kind of, oh, 
We feel our shoulders slump. We feel our motivation die. And for many of us, when we find out that what we're doing is working for somebody else's benefit, for somebody else's good, it it changes something inside of us where we no longer find ourselves super excited about somebody else getting it. And we start thinking, but but I really wanted it for me. I I really wanted it this way. In fact, I I put the corbels here, and I picked out the crown that I wanted, and I did this, that, and I put put MSG in it, y'all. Nobody knows that, but it's so good. Something changes in us when we find ourselves working for others instead of working for ourselves. The indication we get from these prophets is that when it was revealed to them that they were working not for themselves but for others, it did not change the intensity or the direction of their work. Could the same be said of us? Unfortunately, I feel that probably most of us show up to get something for ourselves. We show up to church wanting to get something for ourselves. We come on Wednesday nights to get something for ourselves. We go to life group to get something for ourselves. And so this is what happens in a mindset where we're all seeking to get something for ourselves. None of us are pouring into anybody else in that scenario. If you're only seeking to get something for yourself, to get out of it for yourself, you're not pouring into anybody. And so if you were to stop pouring into yourself in that scenario, in that very selfishly described scenario, there would be nobody pouring into you. That's a sad reality. But that reality can change. But that reality can't change if we keep a selfish, self-centered mindset that says, I'm here for me. My issues that I'm struggling with are for me. My burden that I'm carrying is for me. You see, because when we start to deal with those things publicly, when we start to let other people pour into our lives, because we're so busy pouring into their lives, we find ourselves and the issues we're going through and the ways God has sanctified us being instructive and helpful, not for us, but for those around us. This is church. This is church. Church is not this place to come and to deal with your issues. It's not. Praise God. That was for me, not for y'all. Church is not the place to come and to deal with your issues primarily, but it's the place to come and to let others work on your issues. And some of you say, glory be, I've been gossiping all these years and I didn't know it was a spiritual gift. Here I am working on other people's issues. That's not what we're talking about. Church is this wonderful community where we can come in, be incredibly broken and honest, and walk in and say, this is what my wife and I are struggling with. This is what my husband and I are struggling with. This is what I'm struggling with at work. This is what my kids are struggling with. Students, you can say, this is what I'm struggling with at home. And people are so captivated in pouring into others that you're not having to worry about pouring into yourself. You're not having to worry about this selfish mindset that's not looking out for the good of those around you. We see it in Jesus that he came to serve and to not be served. In fact, he took the form of a servant, lowest of the lowly. We see it in these prophets as well. In the midst of their pouring out and discerning the word of God, they continued to pour themselves out even when it was revealed to them that they were serving someone else, not themselves. 
What a tremendous testimony we could see. What a transformational thing for this church and for any church if we were to all take the mindset that we need to be pouring into others, not selfishly coming to see what we can get for ourselves. Now look at this. What Peter does is he, he seamlessly moves and he connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. These prophets, it was revealed to them they were serving not themselves but you. They were serving you. They were serving me. They were serving the elect exiles. But how? It's in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The way this thing works out, the way the stream of salvation history connects is through the word from the prophets finds its final fulfillment in your response to the gospel. This word from the prophets be it Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, or Nahum, this word from the prophets finds its final resting place, fulfillment, objective in the response of humanity to the gospel. It's not that we'll, so we'll read it and say, oh, this is wonderfully poetic image uh, language used here. I just love the image it's conjuring in my mind. You see, it finds its final resting place, objective, in the response of the Christian to the message of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was revealed to them they're serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you. Anytime you engage in sharing the gospel, anytime you engage in communicating the gospel, the good news of God, you're engaging in fulfilling the prophecy from the days of old and uniting it to the promises found in Jesus today. Romans chapter 10 gives us this beautiful picture. Romans chapter 10, flip over there. Starting in verse 14 of Romans chapter 10, it says, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching reveals God's word to people that have never heard it. Or it communicates God's word, rather, to people who have never heard it. And in preaching, he's not talking about the formal exercise of what we're here doing today. He's not solely talking about that. What he's also bringing in are other forms of communicating the good news. And look at the promise here. When we're out and we're communicating the gospel, you're at work and somebody says to you, oh, Zach, I, I, I see you reading your Bible or I heard you talk about church. I didn't know that you're a Christian. His response in that time is to say, oh, yeah, it's, it's my thing. It's, it's what I do on the weekends. Or, or, I've never heard Zach say that, and so I felt very safe with this. Or, he could, say, he could begin this gospel presentation. I say, yeah, you know, I am a Christian. The gospel has radically transformed my life. Man, I'd love to share it with you sometime, either now or, or sometime that's more convenient for you. The gospel affords us an opportunity not to go out and to be lone snipers with absolutely no cover. Look what he says here. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, our communicating the gospels to others hinges upon the involvement of the Holy Spirit. This is a sweet blessing week after week. If it was on me to change this community or to change this group of people here just by getting up and saying something whimsical or delightful, 
I, I, I'm really sorry. Like, you guys are hosed. I, there's probably a, a better way that I could put that, a way that it would really stick in your mind. But remember this. If it is on me to change you, <laughs> you put that in your wallet and carry it home. I'll make change for you. I can make change on that all day. It is not going to happen. It's not. You're, you're, <laughs> you need to find somewhere else to go, somebody else that can, can tell you, I can change your life if you listen to me. I cannot change your life. God can we can't change the life of anybody we encounter. I have lost family members that I've tried to communicate the gospel with for years. We have lost friends who we've tried to communicate the gospel with for years. We cannot change their lives. We can't. There's no clever argument we can put together and they say, Oh, I finally get it. Because the whole time I thought you weren't carrying the two when it came to the final equation. But now I realize the whole time you were in fact carrying the two. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Oh, I wish that it was that simple. But it's, it's even better than that. The great news we have is that in our faithful response to the gospel, in our faithful communication of it, the Holy Spirit is the one who produces change. The Holy Spirit is the one who's bringing about this. Look what he said, even of us. We were served by the communication of the gospel. We were changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in that communication the holy spirit has wrought new life in us amen that's why when we look back at the person that communicated the gospel with us that led us to christ we don't look back at them or we shouldn't and enshrine them holy and high above they were a servant they were our mothers they were our fathers they were our sunday school teachers they were some guy we passed on the road the holy spirit wrought produced life change in us And it's this tremendous encouragement to us as we engage in any communication of the Bible. Amen? Amen. Look what he goes on to say. (laughs) Thank you. Look what he goes on to say here at the end. This is meant to be a word of encouragement for those elect exiles. Remember, he writes to a group of people, and we've described it here in our own situation. There's a degree to which we should feel homesick for a country we've never known. There's a degree to which we should feel homesick angst over a country we've never known, a place we've never been, because as a Christian, you are a resident alien. This is the place you live. This is the place you go about business, but this is not your home. This isn't a good temporary place to be. This is just where you are, and you're called to be salt and light and light in the midst of this, but still suffering is real. Still, difficulties are real. And he wants these elect exiles to recognize that they are able to be encouraged to take joy in the midst of these sufferings. And so he tells them, he said, look where you find yourself. You find yourself at the final realization and the final demonstration of God's revealed will. That Jesus Christ is the answer for humanity, that he has come in the flesh, that he has suffered and died, and that he has been high and lifted up and exalted, that he overcame sin and death. And in him you might have life and life eternal. He says you need to find encouragement in that. There's not some piecemeal thing that you're looking and trying to put it together and saying, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. God has finally fully realized or demonstrated himself in the scriptures, and we need to know him through that. Look what he says of angels here at the end. Describing the place we find ourselves, and these elect exiles found them. Knowing the sufferings of Christ and the glories to be revealed, 
he said this of it. Things into which angels long to look. Angels enjoy the presence of God. They gather around his throne. They worship him. Outside the third of the angels that fell in rebellion, you have all these angels gathered around and they're worshiping God. They know him intimately. But still when it comes to salvation, there's something about it that captivates them. There's something about it that draws them in. And the way the verb is is kind of articulated and put over here, it's really giving us this picture that they would bend over backwards in the midst of a somersault to catch a glimpse of salvation. It's so radically important, it's so radically beautiful that the unfolding message of God realized in the person of Jesus captivates the angelic hosts who have all of eternity to enjoy God in his presence. It should be a tremendous encouragement to us that the salvation we have is that thing, that very thing which captivates the angelic host because it's so very near to the heart of God and it so very perfectly reveals who God is. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you for this uh, text here in 1 Peter. God, that it just, it's not something we think about very often. It's not something that, that we find being very close to our hearts. But God, you intend that it would move us, that we would be strengthened by knowing the privileged position we find ourselves in, your great love for us revealed in the person of Jesus, this message that began with the Old Testament prophets that's finally communicated to us in the gospel. God, it's not a message change. It's not a, a PR blitz. But your will finally and fully realized, demonstrated in the person of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we would take encouragement from that. I, ta- I pray that God, that you would help us to be bold in sharing that thing which angels long to look at. Help us to be bold in sharing the gospel. Help us to be compassionate with those who are far off. God, help us to lean in and strive to work and to pour into the lives of others around us. God, I thank you so much for your goodness. I pray that you would move in our hearts in this time of application. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.